0: Quite a number of years ago, I was at my sister's house in Granbury, Texas, and she had a book on her coffee table in the family room that was stories about President Lyndon Baines Johnson, stories from his cabinet members and other presidential aides that had worked with him in the White House. And as they were coming toward the later part of their lives, they were writing down their reminiscences. I called Mary Ellen this week and said, do you remember the name of that book? And she said, no, but we both remember the story from the book. So it seems that they were, the presidential aides and other White House staff, at the LBJ Ranch in Texas. They were out in the pool. They were having a fun afternoon, and the president was in the water with them. Now, President Johnson was a large man. He was an uncouth man, but he was also a large man. In fact, some sources say he's the tallest president in U.S. history. Other sources contest that a bit and say that Abraham Lincoln at 6'4 may have been a half an inch taller. But he was one of the top two tallest men as far as the presidency is concerned. That particular afternoon, he found one of the aides that he was wanting to talk to while they were there in the pool, and he pigeonholed him. And he said, I have this new program I'm developing, I'm keen on it, I would like you to leave it. The aide said, I didn't want to do it, but how do you say no to the president? And so he started trying to kind of shadow box and dodge around, oh, Mr. President, I'm, I'm just very honored that you would think of me, but you have so many people on your staff that are so much better than I, no, I want you to do it. Well, you know, I'm, I'm leading quite a number of different initiatives, and I'm excited to do that. I, I'm worried that my workload may slow this down a little bit. You might want to, go. no, I want you to do it. He said, I tried two or three different things trying to somehow get out of this, but he would not be dissuaded. And then said the aide, I became aware that I was getting really tired of treading water, like really tired. And he said, finally came to the point I thought, I got to get out of this pool or I'm going to drown. And so he said, <clears throat> okay, Mr. President, I'll, I'll, I'll do it. He said, as soon as I agreed to do it, We got out of the pool. And it wasn't until then, I'd been so focused on our conversation, it wasn't until then that I realized that the president had positioned me in the pool right where the slope is downward toward the deep end so that I was treading water increasingly frantically and he was standing on the bottom. He could have stood there all day. He was just going to keep me at it until finally I said, okay, which is what I actually did. That story got me to thinking about times in my own life when a request comes my way. Would you, will you, want you? And then you can fill in the blanks from your own life. Could be from your boss at work. Will you? And then the request follows and you're thinking, ugh, I'm not sure. It may come from a colleague at the office or a classmate at school. It may come from your spouse may come from your spouse's desire. Have you looked at the garage lately or a question like that and you're immediately treading water thinking, okay, how do I get out of this? You have such requests in your life and you've answered such, particularly at times when you haven't wanted to do something with saying, well, I don't have enough time. I don't have enough money. I'm not sure that fits my schedule. No. But, What if that request comes from God? What if God is the one saying, will you? Will you? Then what? How do you respond to God's will you in your life? Today we begin a five-part series of sermons that looks at the five Advent prayers in Luke's gospel in the first two chapters. Luke's gospel starts with a lot of singing and with a lot of praying. And we're going to pay attention to those five Advent prayers. Eugene Peterson, in his excellent volume, Christ Plays in 10,000 Places, talks about these five prayers and says, if we follow these prayers, they will teach us the common language of faith. They will teach us to be constantly aware of the Holy Spirit in our lives and in our community. They will teach us the lingua franca of faith. And so we want to pay attention to these prayers. Now you will notice if you've looked at the bulletin or if you've looked at the website that the titles for the sermons are in Latin. There's a reason for that. The Latin Vulgate of the church took the first two or three words of each of these prayers and named the prayer as those words. And so throughout church history for a very long time, these prayers have been known by their Latin names because they're drawn from the first words of each prayer in the Latin Vulgate. So today we begin with the first prayer, the Fiat Mihi. We're going to go to Luke's Gospel, chapter 1, but let me set just a little bit of context before we read the passage. Just before the passage we read for today, Elizabeth, aging, graying Elizabeth, has learned that she's going to have a baby. This is mind-bending for Elizabeth and her husband, Zachariah, so much so for Zachariah that when he is told the news by the angel, he just can't take it in and is struck mute for the months of the pregnancy. But Elizabeth's shame has been lifted. Because in her day and time, to be barren for a woman was to feel a great deal of shame. So her shame has been lifted. But almost on the heels of that story comes the story of a young, unmarried woman who will suddenly have a blanket of shame descend upon her. Older woman, shame lifted. Younger woman, shame is placed on her. Because she's not married And in her world and time, this news could be catastrophic. But contained within what the angel says to Mary, we could use the words, will you? God is asking, will you? So let's reread. Dave Caldwell read the passage so well a few moments ago, but let's read it again. Luke chapter 1, starting with verse left her. As Protestants, we have not always given Mary her due. We have been concerned that Mary might be venerated and so in our ignoring her we have sometimes denigrated her. We're rightly concerned not to make something more of her than the Scripture does. But let's at least make as much of her as the scripture does. Because the truth is, in this passage, in this story, in this whole context of time, other than Jesus who will be born, Mary is the key figure. This young maiden has resting on her shoulders history, salvation, incarnation. And it all comes... In two little words, will you? Because the angel giving this message has Mary in the pool. She's treading water, and the angel is insistent. But God, as a respecter of free will, is asking, will you? Will you? She's in a bad place, quite honestly. At least four different reasons could be named to account for that, if not even others. First of all, she was a woman. In her day and time, to be a woman was a very difficult reality. Because a woman did not have the kind of agency that a woman in today's world among us would have. She depended first on her father, then on her husband, and then if God blessed her with sons on her sons for her subsistence and her ability to survive. She was not in a good place. So first of all, she's a woman. Secondly, she's young, potentially very young. This will be mind-numbing for those of us in the modern Western world, but think of this. The literature about this time suggests that many young women were betrothed to be married at 12 years of age. We don't have an indication of how old Mary was. We don't know that with certainty. But that would not have been out of order with what happened at that day and time. The betrothal happened at 12, then a year passed, and then would come the actual marriage ceremony. During that year of betrothal, it was as legally binding as a wedding, meaning if there was a desire to break the betrothal on either side, it would require the actual proceedings of a divorce. She's betrothed. She's young. She's a woman. She's young. And now in God's will you, marry. she hears that she may be about to be pregnant. Now you have to step out of the 21st century Southern California world. Where there's very little sting in such news. And back into the world of first century Mary. To hear such news as an unmarried young woman would have been relationally and no doubt emotionally catastrophic. What are you talking about? Can you imagine how she's going to break that to her betrothed? I'm, I'm pregnant. You're Is not by me. Well it's by god what What are you talking about just imagine where this puts her it opens her up finally and fourthly to shame deep shame shame for her parents shame for her family shame for her fiance and shame for mary because she lived in an honor and shame culture if you made the right choices if you chose the right roads if you engaged in the right actions Then you could be held up as a model. You could be emulated. You could be adulated. You could be praised. You were honored. But make the wrong choices. Go down the wrong roads and shame would descend. And shame could be crippling. An honor and shame culture. Now we can understand some of that in our world. None of us wants to be shamed. But in our modern world, we can actually get confused between shame and embarrassment, which are two very different realities in terms of their depth. Maybe a good way to get at that is to read what was written by the late Lewis Smedes, theologian and ethicist down at Fuller Theological Seminary for many years. Some, some 20, 30 years ago, Smeads wrote these words. We feel properly embarrassed when we are caught doing something that makes us look inept, knuckleheaded, or inappropriate. Maybe the difference is this. We feel embarrassed because we look bad. We feel shame because we think we are bad. When we're embarrassed, we feel socially foolish. When we're ashamed, we feel morally unworthy. And then Smeeds gave an example. He wrote, A couple of years ago, Doris and I went to a snug round theater called the Mark Tapper Forum at the Music Center in Los Angeles to see a performance of Shakespeare's Julius Caesar in a modern setting. It was a matinee performance starting precisely at 2.30 in the afternoon. It so happened that at 2.30 on that particular afternoon, there were exactly two minutes left to play in the deciding game of the semifinals in the NBA championship basketball playoffs. My team, says "Smeeds, the LA Lakers, Los Angeles Lakers, was playing the Portland Trailblazers, and the score was tied when the curtain went up. This was before iPhones, by the way. Looking ahead to this possibility, I smuggled a Walkman inside the theater. Now, some of you have no idea what I just said, (laughs) but many others of you do. I smuggled a Walkman inside the theater put on the earphones, and listen to the staccato play-by-play by Chick Hearn, the Lakers broadcaster, while I watched the first scene of the tragedy of Julius Caesar unfold before me. My wife glanced at me. That's what he writes, but I think what he meant was she looked daggers at me. But my wife glanced at me. I thought she was asking me to tell her the score of the game. I intended to whisper it. For only her ears to hear. But the crowd at the basketball game was yelling and screaming in my earphones, and I had to make myself heard above the racket, which I did. I yelled. 18 seconds to go, Lakers down by a point. <laughs> 15 rows ahead of me, startled patrons turned around, shocked. On stage, Mark Antony missed a cue. At intermission, I I had to go to the bathroom, and I decided to make my move out into the lobby. A tyke of a woman, half my size and more than my age, was waiting for me. She blocked my path and hissed, you ought to be ashamed of yourself. I told her, I'm sorry, it was an accident. No excuse. She just hoped to God my shameful behavior was a momentary lapse and not a way of life, and I ought to be ashamed and stand up and apologize to the whole cast. People standing around the lobby listened to her to her and watched me, and they were on her side. <laughs> For three days, I felt like a fatally flawed person, standing shamed before the harsh judgment of my cultured superiors. But was it shame? Or acute chagrin? For a little while, I suffered shame for being an inferior human being, and then, brought back to sanity, I felt embarrassment for being a nincompoop at a theater. (laughs) Embarrassment, shame. For Mary, it would not be embarrassment. To be a young, betrothed woman, pregnant, was shameful. And she's treading water in the pool, and God is asking, Will you? Now, Mary must have, I would think, must have at least had a fleeting thought of saying no. In fact, had she said no, she could have stepped into a long line of illustrious people, followers of God, who had said no, at least initially. Moses is in that line, the hero for ancient Israel. God comes to Moses and says, Moses, I, I, I want to lead my people out of Egypt into Canaan. I want you to do it. And Moses says, no, 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 not me. Moses, I want you to do it. God, I can't do it. I want you to do it. God, I can't even speak. I'm I'm stuttering. I'm stammering. I can't. I'll send Aaron. Oh, no, no. Please, God. I don't want to do it. Moses was in that line. Jeremiah was in that line. God comes to Jeremiah and says, Jeremiah, before you were formed in the womb, I knew you and had a plan for you. And Jeremiah says, no, 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 no. Don't be planning for me. I have a plan for you. No, I don't want to do it, God. I'm going to put my words in your mouth, and you'll go out, and you'll speak my words. Oh, no, God, please. I don't want to do it. I mean, Isaiah. Isaiah said, here am I, send me. So, God, here am I, send Isaiah. I don't want to do it. (laughs) Jeremiah was in that line. Jonah was in that line. (laughs) Jonah was really in that Jonah was still dripping wet, and it wasn't just from the pool. He was in that line. God comes to him and says, Jonah, I want you to go preach to the Ninevites. Beg your pardon? The Ninevites. Is there another city called Nineveh? No. So you're talking about that group of people, that warlike group of people that, that goes rampaging across the face of the earth like fire through a Kansas wheat field and leaves mayhem and death, destruction in their path. Those Ninevites, the same. And you can almost see Jonah in his head drawing a quick map. Okay, Nineveh is northeast. All right, I'm hit. Tarshish is that direction. That's where I'm going. And you can almost hear him as he gets on the boat under his breath saying, God, I told you, I don't want to do this. Jonah's in that line. Can you believe it? Jesus is in that line. Thursday night, midnight, the dew settles upon a silent garden of Gethsemane. We can see sleeping figures. And then, well, they call it a prayer, but it's really a cry. Slices the air into Father, please, don't make me drink this cup. Take it away. Jesus is in that line. That's an illustrious group of people. Moses and Jeremiah and Jonah and Jesus. It's so illustrious that we're very hesitant, very hesitant about having the audacity to add our names to it. But I'll have to tell you, if I'm honest, when I look at my life, past and present, I would have to ask your permission to add my name to that list to get in that line. Times when I have tread water saying no, no, no. I don't want to do that. There are a couple of issues right now in my heart and life over which I'm treading water. And unless I miss my guess you might be stepping into that line as well. That line of people to whom God has said, will you? And we've said, no, 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 please, no. But God doesn't stop. Keeps asking. But of all those people, including us, who have stood in that line, our interest today is not in them. It's in Mary, this young, unmarried maiden. Mary, will you? In my mind's eye, We would have to lean forward to hear her response because she's demure, but when we hear it, it's a strong response, a response of faith, of strength, of commitment. We listen to the angel, will you? and Mary says Mary answers Mary speaks fiat mihi fiat mihi it's what the church has called her prayer for centuries literally translated it means may it be done to me. If we translate the full phrase, it's I'm the Lord's servant. Might it be done to me according to your word. There's a much shorter way to say it. The much shorter way to say it is this. Yes. Yes. I will. Understand, however, that that yes, that fiat mihi, that response, it is just that. It's response. It's a prayer of response. And a prayer is always a response to God. That's the point made by Eugene Peterson in the book I mentioned earlier, Christ Plays in 10,000 Places. Here's what Peterson wrote. Prayer begins when God addresses us. First, God speaks. Our response, our answer, is our prayer. This is basic to understanding the practice of prayer. We never initiate prayer, even though we think we do. Something has happened. Someone has spoken to us before we open our mouths, whether we remember or are aware of it or not. Just as we learn to speak our mother tongue by first being immersed in the language of our mothers and fathers, siblings and others, so we learn prayer in response to what is being said to us over and over by the Holy Spirit in Scripture and song, in story and sermon, in heart whispers and bold witness. Just think about that. What Peterson is driving at is saying, our prayer is never the first word. It's never the first action. We are always responding to God. And so God has come. And through the lips of the angel Gabriel, he has spoken. And his question has been, will you? And Mary's response, her prayer of response, is, fiat me, yes. And that's our central thought for today. Our central thought for today is simply this. Your prayer can be yes to God's will you. Your prayer can be yes to God's will you. Because God is asking will you somewhere in your life this morning. As we put our toes on the tip of the Advent season. That's his first question. Will you? I don't know where God is asking that in your life, but it's somewhere. God may be asking that about your career, about your profession, about your work. Will you do something more than just make money? Will you do something more than just pad your bank account and your retirement? Will you do something that makes a difference in the lives of other people? Will you? God may be asking, will you, about your word, You've given your word to a friend, to a neighbor, to a workplace, to a spouse. Will you be a person of your word, a person of your promise? Will you live with integrity? God asks, will you? He may be asking about the direction of your life, where you live, what business, what career, what profession you engage in. Will you live beyond yourself? Will you? I don't know where God is asking will you in your life. But I can tell you this. He's asking it somewhere. And when he asks, we feel like we're in that pool treading water, fighting that battle with ourselves. I love the way William Barclay puts it. He he may put put it better than anyone I've heard put it. He says it this way. Mary's submission is a very lovely thing. Whatever God says, I accept. Mary had learned to forget the world's commonest prayer, your will be changed, and to pray the world's greatest prayer, your will be done. Oh, I've prayed that common prayer many times. Might your will be changed. But what Mary's praying is, might your will be done in my life, even at cost? Fiat mihi, yes. So I came across a blog written by a young mother. She, she entitled it, Our Family Fiat. She was writing about her life and the life of her husband and her young children. And about this story, listen to what she says. Mary's response to the angel is so beautiful to me. Behold, I am the handmaid of the Lord. May it be done to me according to your word, fiat mihi. This response is Mary's great yes to the Lord's plans for her life. Despite her concerns, fears, and worries, she says yes. Knowing that what has been announced is physically impossible, she says yes. Aware of the likelihood of being stoned, she says yes. Understanding that this may ruin her betrothal to Joseph and all the other plans she had thought were in store for her life, she says yes. Even though it would be so much easier to say no, she says yes. Fiat means yes. So far, our family's life has been filled, she writes, with amazing moments rooted in saying yes. When Ryan asked me to marry him, I said yes. At the altar, we both gave our yes to the living of our vows. In marriage, we said yes. To three lives now, our two twins and then the latest bundle of joy, we have said yes. We live our lives by striving to give a resounding fiat, yes, to all that is true, good, and beautiful. This blog is for sharing those fiats, both little and small, with you. This is our family fiat. This is our yes. And so God comes to you. Somewhere in your life, God is asking, will you? Listen to Mary. Watch Mary. Because when God's will you comes to her life, she says, fiat mihi. Yes. Yes. May it be done to me according to your word. So that pool in which you tread water, that request with which you struggle, that will you that lingers in the air, spoken to you by the breath of God, the breath of the Spirit. You're going to have to decide Maybe today is a good day to decide. Mm -hmm. To decide to say, Fian, Vihi. Yes. Find more podcasts, videos, church events, and how you can support the Loma Linda University Church at LLUC.org.